take hold of the life that really is life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. That provocative line from the end of St. Paul's first epistle to St. Timothy has lingered in my imagination these last few weeks. It's brought to mind the very end of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. The final scene of the whole series has the lion Aslan coming to meet the children who stumbled into Narnia through a wardrobe long ago in the very first book. When he meets them, he says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy, speaking for them all, says it's because they're all so afraid they'll be sent back to their own world, like they have been so many times before. No fear of that, says Aslan. He goes on to explain that they've been involved in a railway accident in their world. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. By now, the children see Aslan as he truly is, as the risen and glorified Christ. And we are told that while this is the end of the story for us as readers, for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What a beautiful reminder that contrary to increasingly popular opinion, death is not the ultimate end. No, as we confess each week in the creed, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But if, as Lewis describes it, our life now is only the cover and title page of that great story that for us is largely yet to be told, then our gospel reading this morning is a stark reminder that the story we write now, in the prologue, if you will, has everlasting ramifications for the arc our narrative will take in that great story to come. Let's take a look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a classic reversal of fortune story. There's a rich man who enjoys all the comforts and pleasures this world has to offer. And at his gate lies a poor man, Lazarus, whose penury, hunger, and disease make him the epitome of human misery. But after the two men die, their fortunes are reversed. The rich man now sits in Hades, enduring ceaseless torment, while Lazarus enjoys blissful rest at Abraham's side in paradise. If this is to be a warning to us as we consider our own stories in the life to come, what exactly is it? What did the rich man do wrong and Lazarus do right to end up where they did. If we scour the parable for any kind of explicit answer to these questions, we will find it frustratingly silent. Nowhere 
Does Jesus name the rich man's sin or demonstrate Lazarus's righteousness? But he does imply a great deal through his deft deployment of detail and illusion that would not have been lost on his audience. To begin with, there's the figure of Father Abraham. Abraham's role in the parable is to establish that both the rich man and Lazarus are Jews. They are both sons of Abraham. And neither of their eternal destinies alters that fact. When Lazarus dies, he is escorted by angels to Abraham's side. By the first century, this would have been what all Jews hoped for in the afterlife, to find a place with the patriarch of their people, the father of their faith. On the other hand, we hear the rich man crying out to Abraham from Hades, addressing him as father. He stakes his appeals for help on his identity as a son of Abraham, a member of the people of God. And Abraham acknowledges it. He does not disown him now that the rich man is separated from him and suffering the fate of the wicked in the afterlife. No, he calls him child. For all the reversals of fortune, the rich man still is a child of Abraham. So the implication here is that membership in the people of God is not enough. Simply being a Jew will not be enough to guarantee your bliss and spare you from torment in the life to come. Dante would make a similar point 13 years later in his Divine Comedy, where we find plenty of baptized people in hell. The next place we might look for a clue to where the rich man went wrong in his life is his second appeal to Abraham. Having been rebuffed in his first request for a drop of water, he makes a second request to the patriarch on behalf of his five brothers still alive on earth. He insists that if someone were to go to them from the dead and warn them, they would repent. So we see that the rich man accepts the justice of his place in Hades. He knows that he is here because of his sin, and he would spare his brothers, who are presumably sinning in the same way, a similar fate. But what is their sin? Abraham points him to Moses and the prophets. We do not know precisely which passages are intended here, but our lectionary has given us a pretty representative summary in this morning's reading from the prophet Amos. Alas, for those who are at ease in Zion, and for those who feel secure on Mount Samaria. Alas, for those who lie in beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. I think the key lies in that last line. They are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. It is not the fact of luxury and ease and pleasure that condemns. It is the enjoyment of these things in the face of others' suffering, especially when those others are your own people. This was the rich man's sin. He lived a life of lavish comforts while Lazarus, a fellow son of Abraham, suffered in abject misery at his doorstep. 
Many commentators have suggested that the rich man's wealth blinded him to the suffering of others. That the problem with wealth is that you get so comfortable, you don't even see the poor man at the gate. While wealth can have that effect, I don't think that quite hits the mark in Jesus' parable here. For you see, the rich man knows Lazarus' name. He names Lazarus explicitly in his appeals to Abraham. He wasn't blind to the miserable man lying outside his door. He knew exactly who that man was. He knew his name. Perhaps even more damning, and yes, I suppose the pun is intended here, is the fact that he thinks he can still order Lazarus around, even from his position of torment in Hades. He never once addresses Lazarus directly. He speaks only to Abraham, someone with whom presumably he felt he was more equal to. And he proceeds to ask Abraham to order Lazarus around, dispatching him like some errand boy, first to come and soothe the rich man's torments, and then to go and warn his brothers of their fate, lest they repent. If he knows he is here because of his sin, he has yet to fully grasp what that sin is. The problem with wealth here is not that it blinded the rich man to the suffering of others. It is rather that wealth distorted his estimation of his own worth and the worth of others. It led him to believe that he was better than the likes of Lazarus, and he believes he still is, even after a complete reversal of fortune in the afterlife. This, I think, is what St. Paul has in view when he writes to St. Timothy in our epistle reading that for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty. If you find that you have money, it is not because you are any better than those who have little or none. It is not because you deserve it more or because they deserve it less. For all you have has been given to you by God, who, as St. Paul goes on to say, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So do what the rich man did not do. Do what St. Timothy is to exhort the rich in his community to do. Be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. That's how you lay a good foundation for the future how you write a prologue that sets the stage for the great story so that you may take hold of the life that really is life. But let us not misunderstand what is meant by this. It is not that the life we are living now is somehow not real. It is not that we are waiting around for real life to begin. No, all of this morning's texts are addressed to us now in the life we are living now. This morning, we are neither the rich man nor Lazarus. We are the five brothers. We are those for whom there is still time to listen to Moses and the prophets. We are those to whom someone has come back from the dead. The same one who told the parable also tells us the good news that the rich man's fate need not be ours. 
and his apostles tell us that it is possible even now to take hold of the life that really is life. Though we are on the cover and the title page, though we are writing the prologue, we have already embarked upon the narrative that is our part in that great story that begins in the life of the world to come. But that also means the reverse is possible. It is possible to live a life now that isn't really life. It is possible, like the rich man, to live a lie, to believe that our comforts and privileges are somehow ours by right, that they have been earned, not given, that they are our possessions to be guarded and defended, not resources provided to fulfill our responsibility to care for others. So how do we stop believing the lie and take hold even now of that life that really is life? I want to suggest that we might begin by receiving the Eucharist. In a few moments, before we gather at the altar to receive communion, we will pray the prayer of humble access. The lie our privilege tempts us to believe begins to lose its power over us when we let that prayer shape our self-understanding. For we will confess that we do not bring anything to the table. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. There is nothing we have that we could bring to prove our worthiness here. Next, we take our place beside Lazarus, Recalling that he longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table, we confess we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. Before God, we are all miserable beggars at the gate. But God is not like the rich man. God, whose character is always to have mercy, does not leave us suffering outside. He invites us in, dresses our wounds, clothes us, and gives us the seat of honor at his table. And he then proceeds to feed us, not with the crumbs lying on the floor, but with the precious body and blood of his own dear son, Jesus Christ. This, I think, also helps us understand why Lazarus was in paradise. His name means God helps. It is not that he lived an especially righteous life. It is simply that he has let himself be helped by God. He has received mercy. Where those whose wealth has told them they are self-sufficient, they do not need help, might be tempted to turn it down. Having thus been helped by God in the Eucharist, having been welcomed and fed, having had our fortunes wonderfully reversed, we are sent out into the world to go and do likewise. If there is any exhortation for us this morning, it is this. Go and find Lazarus. You probably won't have to look far. He may be as near as your front door. Maybe you didn't notice him before. Maybe you know exactly who he is. Maybe you know his name. Show him the same mercy you have been shown. Invite him in. Ease his suffering. Provide for him from your own abundance. That is, after all, why you have it. 
I cannot tell you exactly how this will look for you, who Lazarus is to you, or how you are being called to care for him. But I promise you that if you ask the Holy Spirit to show you, he will. It will probably be uncomfortable. You will likely not want to do it. You may do it clumsily at first. It may seem like you're not making a difference, that whatever this is doesn't matter. It may seem too small. Or it may feel like God is asking too much of you. Take the step. Begin practicing mercy. Come back to receive mercy from God in the sacrament often so that you can go back out and show mercy again. Let growth in works of love be the theme of the prologue you write. And you will find that the great story you embark on in the life to come will be a glorious continuation of the life you have already taken hold of, the life that really is life. Amen.